Let's say a word of prayer. Father, we come before your throne first and foremost as grateful for your son. Grateful that in his name we can approach you, that we can gather before you, and that you love us. Lord, it's so easy to forget that during the holiday seasons with all the different Christmas songs that a big part of what, in general, most people are celebrating is the fact that you sent your son because you love us. Lord, thank you for your mercies. Seriously, thank you. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, I just praise you. I praise you so much for the way you continue to just reveal your son to us and reveal your love for us through your son and through your people. Again, Lord, thank you for your mercies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, what is the point? What is the goal? To what end? In 2015, I was experiencing a challenge in my own faith and my walk. Cynicism had taken root in my heart. I was delusion. I became disillusioned about a lot of things. And again, it wasn't that my understanding of God was bad, but where I was in my life, that understanding of God got me to about as far as I could go and probably not an inch more. And so maturity was necessary for this next phase. Late December of 2015, I remember being in, 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 in our home and I remember praying like, God, I have this internal struggle. Like every time I showed up on Sunday, I was critical of what was being preached. I was critical of people around me. I was suspicious of other people's motives. Like someone may say they were going to do something amazing. I was suspicious. Someone didn't want to do something amazing. I was suspicious. It just, I just became so internally critical. And I've been blessed and cursed with self-awareness. Sometimes it's a blessing. I'm grateful that I can look in the mirror and be like, you're not all that. And then other times I'm like, man, I wish I could just ignore what's wrong with me. Uh, And so even in the midst of me being critical and cynical, I started looking at the areas of my life where I wasn't following Jesus, where I wasn't honoring Jesus. I easily was the minister who would proclaim Hey, don't forget Jesus in your day-to-day experience. Follow Jesus. Honor Jesus. And then as soon as I got off the pulpit, I forgot Jesus. I forgot Jesus in every aspect of my life until a Bible showed up. But outside of that, I, I, I was easily forgetting Jesus day-to-day. When I think back to those times, my prayers were so transactional. God, do this for me. God, do this for me. God, do this for me. And, and again, in the beginning, that seemed to work. God seemed to say yes. But as, um, as I matured... I realized when I wasn't getting what I want, I got more cynical. And even as I read scriptures and I would prepare sermons, I was serving as a campus minister during that time. I would talk about what God has done in the past in the scriptures, the great way that God was working. But internally, I had a suspicion that God wouldn't act like that again. Like, oh, God's power was for that season, for that era. But his power doesn't work in that way. And if you told me otherwise, I was suspicious of you. And probably the biggest heart revelation I had was Jesus wasn't my spiritual hero. He was not a role model, not a standard, not a goal. I had other things and Jesus was an important piece to get into those things. But Jesus himself was not who I was trying to imitate. So a series of events took place after that initial prayer. Um, In the fellowship, 
that same Sunday, I remember the minister got down and I don't know how we came. We, we even sparked a conversation, but he was like, you know what you should read, LaFrance? You should read this book called Simply Jesus from N.T. Wright. And I said, uh, sure. You know, I usually write down things, but I, I was like, I'm not going to read it. And then crazy enough, Jesse, that same week, suggested to read N.T. Um, Wright Simply Jesus. I'm like, OK, two people in one week. I'm like, let me go ahead and get it. And I remember reading it, and one of the things within the first three chapters, I'm like, he's talking so much about Jesus. And it should have been like, duh, I'm a Christian. We should always talk about Jesus. <laughs> but I'm like, he's talking so much about Jesus. Jesus, yeah. Like, I said, Jesus, Lord, at my baptism. That's what I said. And then on my, on, on a, um, shortly after, a good friend of mine, we were talking and we were connecting, and that mean-spirited, critical nature came out again in the conversation. And my friend paused me, and then he rebuked me. He was like, man, it doesn't sound like you love God's people. It doesn't sound like you love God's church. Like, do you think you should continue to serve in the capacity that you're serving in? And I said, you know, that's a great question, man. I don't know what's going on with me. And, and after that conversation, a couple of days later was my birthday, and I was, on, I was, on, I was driving, and I said, okay, I'm going to pray here. I was praying, and I was like, God, guide me, help me see you, help me find you. I know you've out, you're out there. I have felt the covenant and the relationship that we've had with one another. And a foreign thought came into my mind. It was my own conscience, my own thoughts, but it wasn't a thought that I was thinking about because that just wasn't what I was thinking about. And something came to mind, and it said, and two things that were very clear to me. Read Luke chapter 1. And participate in the kingdom now. That was like right after I was done praying. Read Luke chapter 1. And it felt like my own thoughts. But again, it felt foreign. Because it wasn't like that's what I was thinking about right before. And in the last seven years from that, I read Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. And Luke begins his gospel. And he tells Theophilus, like, I want you to be certain of the things you were taught. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I need that. I need to be certain of what I was taught. I need yeah. my, my roots were wide, but they were not deep. And I needed to start getting deeper in this next season of my life and then to participate in the kingdom. It just never dawned on me what it was to participate in the kingdom. For a long time, someone would say, hey, participate in the kingdom. You mean go to church, participate in the kingdom. You mean what exactly? Whatever you're talking about. Cool. But that moment started a journey of what it means to be a member of the kingdom of God. And so. From that, for the last seven years, I've made it my point to look for Jesus every day. I made it my point to experience Jesus every day. I have not done that perfectly, but I have been faithful to it. And so what's the point? Jesus Christ is Lord. What's the goal? Participate in the kingdom of God. To what end? A daily walk in the path that Jesus sets for us. You see, in many ways, this is what Zachariah is pointing us to in the Gospel of Luke. He's given this prophetic word to point to a new reality, a reality that leads to a path of peace. You see, peace is one of the benefits of the gospel. It's one of the benefits of living and walking with Jesus. I know personally, as we get ready for the holiday seasons, season, it can be very challenging to keep your peace. This is where conflict happens in the home. You're going to fight over the toothbrush. You're going to fight over the toothpaste. You're going to fight over the budget, how much money is being spent. You're going to fight over the gifts. This is also where you can experience that loneliness that disrupts your peace. Where you feel really alone. You feel really not connected. You know, this is where you remember 
how damaged some of your relationships are when you look and say, I want to start sending the text messages if you're still that person. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And you realize, oh, I don't want to text this person anymore. And you realize, man, that, that's something that was lost. And yet in Christ, the path of peace is a part of the way of life. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Again, we're, we're, we're going to be jumping through different um, parts of the gospel of Luke just because we can't go through every single verse by verse. It'd just be really challenging. It'd be a, a four-year project. And I don't think we want to be in Luke for four years because by the time we're done, we'll forget what chapter one was all about. Um, Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled. This is John the Baptist, his father. Luke chapter one, verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his covenant. The oath he swore to our father, Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. How do we participate in the peace the kingdom provides? See, worship completes our salvation. Salvation, as we read this portion of Luke, is a reoccurring theme. It, it, like Luke mentions it several times in this, in this, uh, in just in these nine verses. And, and, and salvation is one of those words that feels super Christian. It's like, oh, what does that even mean, salvation? And a lot of times we think my, primarily personal reconciliation to God that will one day lead us to heaven. And yet, when the gospel writers use it, it has that component to it, but it has a more robust, more rich component to it as well. Salvation is rescue, deliverance. An example of salvation would be, hey, I wasn't able to pay my bills today, and one of you guys helped me out with my bills. You just rescued me. God used you to deliver me. I was having conflict in my marriage, and we were butting heads, and I just felt like we were going to use the forbidden word, D, the divorce word. And someone came in, whether it was a professional or a therapist, and you rescued me. You helped me. Salvation is I was confused and I didn't know where God was working in my life and I'm starting to feel discouraged and you gave me a word of encouragement. You rescued me. You delivered me. You see what Luke says here through the words of Zechariah, God has raised up this horn. The horn in the Old Testament was a sign of strength. And so the horn that God has raised up is Jesus. Jesus is God's strength. For a lot of us, that may feel like duh, but sometimes we forget that Jesus is God's strength. We think of God splitting the Red Sea. We think of him forming the world in seven day, six days. We think of all the signs and mirac miraculous things. and be like, that's God's strength. What Zachariah is saying here is Jesus is the very strength of God. Jesus is God's strength. 
And so what, what, what is the um, what is Zachariah prophesying about? What do God's people need rescue from? From those who hate us. That was the Romans and that was the religious leaders. You have to understand that this is written. The, the setting it takes place is probably anywhere between 28 D and probably. Well, this is when when they were like babies. So it's probably like early, like 6 A.D. to 3 B.C. In some anywhere between there. But it's written probably around late 50 something, late 60 something A.D. And so as they're reading this prophecy, they're thinking about their situation like God can rescue us from Rome. God can rescue us from the religious leaders. God is still working powerfully to rescue us. You know, we, we titled the, I titled the lesson uh, The Path of Peace. But any of us who've ever followed Jesus know sometimes his path does not lead to peace. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit more about the peace he's talking about. So we're not deceived. You know, uh, in 2022 in America, for the most part, some, some people could legitimately have enemies. And I pray for you. That you guys reconcile the enemy. But I think, especially in a city like, like this, our, 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 our thinking, our way of being sometimes can cause us to have enemies. Even if you don't wish anyone harm. It can be that way. You know, there's a term used by um, a lot of scholars called cognitive minority. You know, that's this idea of thinking about Jesus and the kingdom. That's, that's, an increasingly, that's, be, that's increasingly becoming the minority position. In this country, at least the latest poll on um, Barna Research has shown. So what does God, so why does God send Jesus to deliver us? That's a good question, you know. You're like, why? Why does he send him? Well, the verse in 74 says, so that we can serve him without fear. Now that word serve is a unique word. It is the Greek word, lecturos. I said it totally wrong, okay? So don't try to, I can tell you, if you want to know how to spell it, I can tell you. I think it's lecturos, but if not, that's okay. Um, and that word actually is a service in connection to spiritual worship. It's the word, it's supposed to ignite in your imagination the story of the Exodus. Let's go to Exodus chapter 8. You see... Jesus was sent so that we can serve God without fear, so we cannot fear. Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. You see, the Exodus imagery didn't have connected to it the idea of being of your sins being forgiven, but it had more connected to it, this new way of living under God's covenant. God wanted to release the Israelites so they could be a people for him. And when we think of salvation, when we think of rescue, when we think of deliverance, the primary goal of that or the primary living into that reality is a new social, political and spiritual order. Which is so big. This is something I didn't understand when I first started following Jesus. I, I understood the spiritual component of it, that my sins would be, would be forgiven, but I didn't understand the radical shift that was supposed to start happening in my own personal life, socially and even politically. And when I say politically, I mean what I give my allegiance to, not necessarily who I vote for or what I vote for, but what I give my allegiance to. You see, the addition of sins is important because being forgiven is important. 
to the rescue of God, but it doesn't diminish the other components of the exodus. Sin is a sentence of death. That's what Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. And we carry that until he forgives us. And here's the cool part. No matter how egregious your sin is, it's forgivable. No matter how messed up your sin is, it's forgivable. Like he puts that on offer consistently. And even after we follow Jesus, all we have to do is end the day, begin the day, midday. God, forgive me. And he's like, I forgive you. You know, a lot of times in our in our relationships with one another, sometimes, you know, we, we can go through the hula hoop to get forgiveness from one another. We could be like, I got to prove it to you. I got to show you who I really am. And yet Jesus is not like that. He's like, I forgive you. You're like, but what, what, what I didn't even do. You, you, we are, we're going to read it a little bit later in the year. But the parable of the lost son, you know, the prodigal son, like he had this whole spiel. He's like, don't even make me a son. Just just make me a slave. I just want to be in your house. I want to eat better. He's like, you're a son. Come back. It's good. That's who we can reach out to consistently when we seek forgiveness. Now, that doesn't negate the, the reality of us being human and we're still being formed into Christ and we need to learn to imitate that forgiveness. But that's who we first, seek, first and foremost seek forgiveness from. So that forgiveness of sins is important part of our deliverance. It's very important. You see, what, what does forgiveness do? Forgiveness creates first and foremost a sense of belonging. If you felt alienated from someone, if you felt alienated from relationships, you can almost feel like, man, I don't belong anymore. Forgiveness creates that sense of belonging. It's from that sense of belonging that we start to believe. It, 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 for a long time, I thought we should believe first, then belong second, then be transformed. And But yet, the offer of forgiveness is available first, predicated on our belief, but it's available first. And that creates a sense of belonging Then we believe and then we start to experience the transformation. And you know where that transformation happens? In worship. Now, I'm not just talking about the Sunday experience. Some of you come here and it's easy to give your heart for the hour to 30 minutes. I'm talking about a lifestyle. Romans chapter 12, offer your body as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. This idea of a life shaped by the person and character of Jesus Christ. More than the Sunday experience. You see, worship forms the people. That's what he wanted to do in, uh, in, in Egypt. He called them out of the desert. I mean, called them out of slavery, brought them into the desert and said, man, I'm going to form a people who will reflect my way to the world. And worship does that for us. <laughs> Spiritual formation. I've been talking about this. We're going to keep talking about this because I feel like. In 2015, the reason my my roots were wide but not deep is because I never was actually trying to live like Jesus. I was trying to not dishonor Jesus. Those are two goals, two separate goals. I didn't want to dishonor Jesus, but I didn't necessarily want to live like Jesus. Now, if you were to approach me, Steve, what do you desire? To live like Jesus. To really walk as Jesus did. To really be a faithful follower of Jesus. And that is not always easy, and yet that is the goal. You know, Israel, you see, Zechariah's song comes into fruition through the people that worship the sun. If you worship Jesus, if you look to Jesus, then you start to see what Zechariah is talking about. We're going to talk a little bit later about where he talks about the path of peace, but it comes through worship of Jesus. That's that. We'll talk more about that. Um, 
You know what worship produces? Faithful worship, again, not just the Sunday experience, but the Sunday through Saturday experience. It produces a holiness and a righteousness. A holiness and a righteousness that doesn't simply need the Sunday experience to kickstart it. It's become something that you're just seeking because you're seeking Jesus. You see, Israel couldn't worship well because their spiritual leaders were bankrupt. We talked about that last week. They themselves were not seeking Jesus. Or as Marty Solomon likes to say, they lost the plot. They lost what the whole story was about. I think it's easy for a lot of us to lose what this story is about in any given week. You see, worship completes our salvation. What I'm going to share, I don't want to share this in a way to diminish what anyone is doing. Everyone has a starting point, and I want you to feel good about your starting point. But I do want to remind you of the goal. The goal is to be like Jesus. So please hear my heart, hear me. I'm not criticizing what you're doing, but I do want to remind you of where we're trying to go, and that's Jesus. In 2015, I spent 10 minutes in the morning praying, 10 minutes reading my Bible, and I was out of there. If I did, if I read any longer than that, it was in preparation for a lesson. But I wasn't really spending a lot of time with God. I, and that season of my life, I st- I'm still not fired up about fasting. But I understand the, the benefits of fasting now way better. <laughs> but I wouldn't fast. You know, someone's like, hey, let's fast. Give up food? Oh. The whole time I was fasting, instead of being somewhat deep in prayer, you know what I was thinking about? I want to eat. 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 And then, you know, you're like, let's just say you're saying you're going to fast from 7 to 6.30. You're like, oh, 7 to 6.30. As soon as it was 6.30, I just stopped whatever I was doing. I just started eating. I didn't pray about what I fast for. I'm just like, I need to eat. And so my heart wasn't rooted. You know, there were certain worship songs I really liked, but a lot of times Christian music just annoyed me. I liked it on Sunday, but I didn't like it any any time outside of Sunday. (laughs) My heart wasn't rooted. These are just certain things. I never had, I never created in my life space to hear my thoughts and feel what I actually was feeling. I grew up in a household where we didn't talk about feelings a lot. And they were a hindrance. And sometimes, if I'm being completely honest with you, I can still struggle with that reality. I'm feeling a little sad. Whatever, man, let's go. No one got time for this. But that's not good. That's not wise. Um, but here, here's, here's why I bring that up. My worship was only on Sunday. My worship was on a Wednesday. My worship may have been on a Friday. And so I got all these gaps in my schedules where there was no worship occurring. And I started losing track of what God was doing through me, in me, and around me. <clears throat> Now, if you're, if you're like, I don't read, I don't pray, I don't do any of those things, amen, start somewhere. Start somewhere. This is a journey, and don't feel bad about where you are. I'm just saying I needed to be, not only be wide, but deep in Christ. Amen. See, Jesus forgave me. He forgives me. He revealed to me that I belong to him. I get revealed that every single day that I belong to Christ, every day. And now... I need to believe that he who says I belong to him also cares that my actions are in line with his will. And that's when I slowly but surely start to transform. Most of everyone in here did not know me before I became a Christian. If you would have met me before then, 50 percent of you would have been terrified of me. (laughs) Seriously, you'd have been scared. I would have been scared of 50% of you too. 
It'll work both ways. <laughs> I'm like, you're so nice, and then you're like, you're so mean. <laughs> it would have been the world colliding. But man, again, I'm still maturing. I, I, sin, I sin consistently, and there's a lot of areas of my life that the, the, the ways of Jesus has not been formed completely, and I'm still working on those things. But man, I look back, and I'm like, gosh, I've changed so much. Praise God, for real. <laughs> like, I look, I'm like, man, so much, so much. Like, it's just crazy. Amen. Sometimes I'm like, I know that guy exists because I am that guy, but I don't remember that guy until I remember that guy. Amen. Now, every once in a while, Steve from North Miami Beach pops up. <laughs> and then we got to pray for that, brother. <laughs> but it don't happen as frequently as it used to. Nowhere near as frequently as it used to. You see, the, the Israelites, their worship, what, what, what Zachariah is pointing to is when you can find yourself in Christ, when you can find yourself rooted in his love and his mercy, it removes fear. You see, fear disrupts our peace. But in worship, we're reoriented in such a way that our fear is diminished. Like It's, it's, it's challenging because, again, how many, how, many, how many of the world, probably some of you in here, struggle with anxiety? Anxiety comes from a root of fear. And that distracts us. It's heavy. It's a huge burden. And yet, worship is supposed to be this reorienting thing that calms our, our fears and let us see Jesus in a, re- in a real and meaningful way. See, the path to peace starts with worship. And that's what completes our salvation. That's when we get that rescue that I was talking about. But it's also... It, once we start worshiping, something happens on the inside, and that we start to be transformed on the inside so we can start living outwardly. You see, in, in that passage we read, it says, Light shines in the darkness. Inside out transformation. John the Baptist was sent by God to be a prophet for Jesus, his ministry was to prepare people for an encounter. With Jesus, Our calling is very similar. We are always preparing people for an encounter with Jesus. John needed to give the people a knowledge, a knowing of salvation. Like how would Jesus do it? John kind of knew how he would do it, but John didn't know fully. But we know fully because we are on this side of the resurrection. You know, for a long time, I thought, man, what is the knowledge of salvation? You need, to, you need to repent and be baptized and then live like a disciple. And you're like, well, that's super simple. Of course it is. You know, I realize if you don't spell that out really plainly, you could be very confused. I lived confused to some extent about what that really meant. You know, a lot of times when we think of discipleship, we really have to bring it back to what it means to follow Jesus, to be an apprentice of Jesus. For a long time, I thought discipleship was showing up on Sunday, showing up midweek. You know, maybe not looking at anything pornographic. Don't curse someone out. And then maybe you get in a Bible study and now you're like, you're a rock star. And at no point, like I said, from 2008 when I became a believer to 2015, I was doing all those things and yet my heart was still really far from God. And it was getting further and further away the longer I was following God. And so discipleship doesn't negate those things. Those are important components to forming you into who God is calling you to be. But at its core and at its, at it, at its drive, it's about being like Jesus. Yeah. Being like Jesus. Yeah. That doesn't sound like news to you. And yet sometimes I think we could forget that part. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's to be like Jesus. Dallas Willard has this phrase that I really love. Salvation is not forgiveness. It's not just forgiveness, but it's a new order of life. When we are saved, are we radically transformed? Are we being transformed? You know, like, it's easy. Most of us in here, it's super easy to be a faithful follower of Jesus in this room right now. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't got to be mean. You could knock it out within the hour or so we see you. As soon as you leave here, are you still following Jesus? Are you still imitating Jesus? Apprenticeship to Jesus, be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what he would do with your life. What do I mean by do what he would do with your life? You can't be like Jesus in the sense of being a carpenter in the Middle East. You just ain't going to do it. (laughs) However, if Jesus was living your life right now, how would he treat the people next to him? How would he work? How would he serve? How would he do your life? That's a huge part of apprenticeship to Jesus. And that takes a lot of time and that takes a long time. It won't happen overnight. I think sometimes we've bought into the lie that our discipleship needs to be microwaved in 60 seconds or less. And then, boom, fresh discipleship. It is a lifelong journey. It is a lifelong journey. Seriously, we think maybe a message like this is going to be it. Perfectly, it could be a catalyst. But if you think just hearing this message, you're going to have it all figured out moving forward. You're out to lunch and you're paying for it yourself. (laughs) And again, for a long time, discipleship was try harder. Just try harder. You see the commands, do them. Try harder. Just grit your teeth, man. Just raw obedience. How many of you have ever been to, how many of you could bench 400 pounds? (laughs) We got one person. At the risk of embarrassing myself, you know, I used to be really strong. Okay. The Lord has humbled me over the years. <laughs> I, I started getting back into the gym more consistently in 2019, then COVID hit, then I lost all. But then I started getting back more consistent. And, you know, I'm in the gym with the other young boys in there, and I got to let them know I'm still out here. <laughs> and so I do the two plates, and they're like, and I'm like, yeah, you know. Then one of the other young guys puts another plate on there for himself. He bitch, and he like, you got this? And I'm like, I don't think I got it. <laughs> but I didn't say it. How would I know until I tried? Well, I unhooked it, and it just slowly started descending into my chest. <laughs> and I think I said, this is going to break my chest cavity, which is it's my fault. Anyhow, it comes down, and then he said, try harder. Try harder to lift it. And anyone who's ever done any bench pressing, once your leg kicks up, you lost. My leg kicked up. And I was like, that's the sign for help, but I can't say help. And so the guy looked, and he left it. And then he was like, that was a little too much for you. And then I was like, duh. (laughs) But no matter what I could have done in that moment, no matter how hard I tried in that moment, I did not build the muscles for that moment. So discipleship isn't about trying hard. It's about training, developing the sort of person who can do those things. So a lot of us hear the teachings of Jesus turn the other cheek and you're like, I am a hothead. I own a gun. I will shoot you. You have to spend your life training 
to be the person who can sit back and say, man, I've gotten to the point where you disrespecting me in that way doesn't even offend me the way it used to. And I trust that vengeance is God and he will deal with you so I can leave it alone. That doesn't happen overnight. To consider others better than yourself. Some of us have been abused in a way that's not helpful. And so when you think of saying, man, I'm going to consider someone better than myself. They're going to take advantage of me. They're going to treat me wrong. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And so when you hear that teaching, you're like, in theory, I believe it, but I'm never going to practice it. It takes training to get there. It takes training to get to say, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for God. And that God will honor me again. So I'm not encouraging anyone just to go like. Let's just go hardcore and just start doing everything. You wouldn't do it. You would have been doing it already. Like, seriously, you would have been doing it already. And if you're like, no, I obey every single thing that I see and I never disobey. I hate to say this to you in this public Senate. You've been deceived. You've been deceived. And I pray that, you know, the Lord will continue to work in your life to see that, okay, it's a process. It's a lifelong journey that we become more and more like Jesus. On the last day, we become completely like Jesus. You see, Jesus came into the world to bring people into the light. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To follow Jesus' way and his life is so important if we're going to experience what he talks about in John 8 when he said the truth to set you free. We forget that we have to follow his life. See, darkness is the pre-creation state. When God was created in Genesis chapter one, the world was dark already. He didn't create darkness. It was already there. And he brought light into the situation. The world was formless and void. The first act of creation was bringing light into the world. In the ancient world, something existed not by virtue of its material properties, but by virtue of it having function in an ordered society. This is what John Walton is talking about. So. If this chair or this, this stand didn't have a purpose, someone in the ancient world would be like, this doesn't exist. We see it, it's here, but it doesn't exist because it really has no purpose. So if you ever created something with no purpose, they would have been like, that doesn't exist. That's how they understood um, the ancient cosmology. And I think that's what's working here, too. See, darkness was there before God created the world, as I mentioned, but it had no purpose. So it was essentially, it was essentially non-creation. For us, living in darkness is living unaware of how God plans to use our lives to bring his honor and glory. And that can happen as a non-believer if you've never seen Jesus. And that can happen as a believer where you don't even know why you wake up every morning. And you wake up like, uh, you know, you live. There, there was a movie, I think it was called Click, where everything was on fast forward. You live on fast forward consistently, never knowing what God is trying to do with your life. And it becomes discouraging. And you just feel like, well, I just, just, I'm just going to keep showing up, which isn't bad. But man, Jesus says, I have life and life to the full. Participate in that. <clears throat> but we live in a state of darkness because we don't know what God is calling us to do. Like, what is, what is the vocation? What is the calling? What is the drive? You see, not only preaching the gospel, though that's really important, but it's also living what we believe about the gospel. Maybe you're living in darkness right now. Maybe there's like legitimate sin in your life that the Holy Spirit has been prompting you, is currently prompting you to get open about it. You're like, this is just heavy on me. It's been heavy on me. Bring it into the light and experience the mercy and love of God. 
maybe again, it's in life. You wake up, you're like, my, 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 my main goal is to collect a check. I wake up every day just trying to collect a check and that's it, man. One day I'm going to die and no more checks. Life is so much more than that. And I say that as someone who used to live, used to want to just have a billion dollars. What I would have done with a billion dollars, Lord knows. I would have probably got a whole bunch of Legos, man. It would have just been a waste of my money. I would have, I would have been the first broke billionaire. You would have gave it to me and I would have blown it all within three years. And you're like, how did we get here? You see, our faiths are veiled from seeing the light of Christ. And so we need our faith unveiled. And how do we do that? We cling to the way of Jesus and God will renew you. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. An unveiled face, contemplating the Lord's glory, being transformed. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. For, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Verse 16 of that same chapter. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Paul points to the reality that Zechariah is alluding to, that this light, Jesus, has come into the world, and he wants to remove the veil from our face so we can see his light and that we can experience the transformation of greater Christ-likeness. To contemplate that word in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is to look in the mirror. This is one of the most terrifying things in the world to do, especially for those of us who don't have the curse and the blessing of self-awareness. This is terrifying to look in the mirror and see who you really are and contemplate Jesus and say, I am not like Christ. This is, a, this, is, this is the kind of work that your minister, your spiritual director, your therapist can't help you with other than say there is a mirror and you need to look at the areas where you are not seeing yourself like Christ. Which again, uh, it's terrifying. But what could give us courage? What should give us courage? God's mercy gives us courage. Look in the mirror and know you're forgiven in love. Look in the mirror that you were di- he died for you even though you may feel like a grade 10 mess. He's like, yeah, yeah, my mercy, I love you, but I want you to be more like my son. Once we transform our hearts, we become people who live like Jesus. And again, that happens by training to live like Jesus. That happens through experience. How do you know what area you don't live like Jesus until you drive in bonkers traffic? (laughs) Again, the Lord has spared us from the trial here in Maine. Like we don't get bonkers traffic in Maine. But in other areas, man, you want to see if you're a nice person, if you have self-control? Go in traffic, man. Are you on the honk and the horn? Um, Prayerfully not. But if you are, then at least you know you're kind of out of there. And then the Holy Spirit obviously transforms us. So worship turns us into people who experience that inside-out transformation, that inside-out change. That change guides us along the path of peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. 
And that comes from the garden in imagery in Eden. My God is like, oh, I want to give you guys this garden, this garden of Eden with me. I want you guys to experience the oneness with me, the oneness with one another, the oneness with creation. And that that's the path of peace that he's leading his people to. Like I said earlier this year, we become micro Edens. We get to jump into Eden at varying points. This is the salvation that's available every day. Every day we get to walk into Eden if you're looking for it. Eden is radically available every single day. I, I want to give Tim Mackey a huge shout out. He did this incredible lesson. Just put in the YouTube, Tim Mackey, Eden. You could thank me later. He did an incredible job of just talking about um, experience eating and experiencing the state of Shalom. And Zechariah prophecy is pointing to this reality. This inside out. So how do we know all this is true? Everything I just said, how do we know? What if I just made it up? I hope I didn't. I didn't make it up, but we believe it. We know it because God is good. God is good. Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. God is good. What this passage points to is God is covenantly faithful to his people. He's like, if I give you my word, I won't break my word. Like God is unlike anyone we've ever met. He's like, I will not break my word. My word is my bond. My word I'm connected to. I will not allow my word to be broken. And God's word says he's going to give us Christ. He's slow to anger. So if you're scared about looking in the mirror, you're like, he's going to be angry with me. He's slow to anger. He's so patient. How patient? Read the Bible. He's radically patient. He is patient, patient, patient. But he's also just a disproportionate God. Faithfulness produces blessings for a thousand generations. Unfaithfulness produces for three generations of challenges. That is insane about how good God is, and that was revealed in the Old Testament. So how do we trust in his goodness? One foot at a time. One foot at a time. One foot at a time. What I just talked about, the path, the path of peace, the path to the garden, the path of shalom. God is good, and he will guide us there if we're faithful to him. We're going to take some time and reflect, and then um, we're going to say a prayer for communion.